patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Talosky. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate all of your support every single week. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. Um, I really do appreciate all of you sharing my content. Um, This is a really, really exciting time for Friends and Fellow Citizens. And today, I've got a very special guest joining on to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Today, my guest is Carolyn Hoover. Uh, Carolyn is the granddaughter of two Japanese-American incarcerees. In 2020, she graduated from Duke University with a degree in public policy and global health, and she is now an investment banking and analyst at Rothschild & Company. When she was in high school, she was selected by the Japanese government to serve as student ambassador between Japan and the United States. And since then has served as a delegate and American Executive Committee member for the Japan America Student Conference. She earned her Girl Scout Gold Award through creating a video tour and educational materials for the National Japanese American Memorial to Patriotism, and has also created a brief documentary on her family's incarceration experience that was aired at the Smithsonian. Carolyn has served as a legislative intern for Congressman Honda and worked for a year at the Department of Commerce, both locally in D.C. and abroad in Paris, France, at the American Embassy. In addition to representing her country internationally as a civil servant and ambassador, she has also represented Team USA at ITU Multisports World Championships. Certainly a very busy young woman here to join on to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, Sherman. Excited to be here. Well, today's topic is about a an era of history that I personally believe is one of the most significant ones in the 20th century. You know, as we reflect as a country, we think about ways that we can uh, move forward. Uh, but there are obviously times when we need to reflect on the difficulties and the failures that we have encountered as a country. As no country is perfect. Uh, there needs to be, I think, some kind of of reflection, I should say, back to kind of some of the things that uh, we did not do right as a nation. And today we're mainly focusing on the Japanese-American internment camps that happened in the 40s. On February 19th, 1942, America changed in a way uh, that did not reflect the initial values of this country. President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, uh, essentially ordering all all aliens and all American citizens of Japanese ancestry sent to uh, military installations across the nation. And it has created a lot of hardship, obviously, for uh, for numerous uh, loyal American citizens, many of whom actually served our nation's armed forces. Um, This all came in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And while the country's national security situation uh, was certainly in question. Uh, however, uh, there's 
understandably has been a lot of criticism about this particular executive order and just how one document can just change the happenings in our nation's borders. So, Carolyn, I want to start with a bit about you know the impact of the executive order. So, tell us about what happened after this executive order um, and how these internment camps came about affecting Japanese Americans across the nation. Thank you, Sherman. First, I want to say thank you for covering this topic because it's one of the important pieces of American history that we don't cover really in schools. So when I first learned about Executive Order 9066, it was really through my grandparents. I had read an entire chapter on the Holocaust and then a little blurb on the bottom talked about Japanese American incarceration. And that was so shocking to me because as a Japanese American, I would thought would have thought that I would know more about it. So I asked my grandmother and she's like, honey, yes, that's actually us. We were interned. And I then learned from her that after Executive Order 9066 was signed into law by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, their entire world changed. And while all of America was terrified that Pearl Harbor had just been bombed, there was also, as soon as it happened, talk among Japanese Americans of, wow, okay, what's going to happen to us now? And as soon as it happened, my grandparents were living, well, my grandmother was living in San Francisco, Japantown, and that was important because that was their only really community. And so the army came in and put up signs that first started instituting times they had to be home by, things they could do, and it became very militaristic and very limiting. And when they first heard about what the intention was, that they had to leave their homes, that they had two days to sell everything or protect their belongings, it was just so much uncertainty and so terrifying to know I'm an American citizen. I was born here and yet my rights don't matter anymore because people who look like me are now deemed the enemy. And by default, that makes me the enemy as well. And even before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there was already a ton of racism against Asian Americans in the United States. And what was interesting was after Executive Order 9066, it was the first time where really Chinese Americans started being seen as human beings and Americans because they were able to wear buttons that said, I am Chinese. So they weren't deemed to be Japanese. And that was actually a way that the American government was able to gain more support by um, Chinese Americans. So that was the first time really that there was even more contention against Japanese and Chinese Americans, and it became really terrifying. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a very difficult chapter to reflect, right? Because as I said earlier, you know, one executive order could change the livelihoods of countless people. It's, it's remarkable because we always believe that the constitution doesn't suspend anybody's rights. I mean, in fact, it protects uh, protects people's rights all the time. Even if there are, you know, national security questions, that doesn't mean that a particular group can just all of a sudden lose their rights. That's one of the really the most horrifying things. So, uh, I'm so interested in more about you know your grandparents' experience through all this because they lived through this. They lived through those those challenging times. So. Um, could you elaborate a bit more about you know their experience arriving at 
the camp, uh, I believe it was Camp Topaz in uh, Utah, and kind of about some of the aspects of day-to-day life that you re- recall from what they have uh, been telling you about their experiences there. Right. So one thing that my grandmother has always said is that our internment camps in America could only really work with Japanese Americans because of our sense of duty to helping our country. And there are two phrases that I would think really describe the Japanese American experience. The first is gaman and the second is gambatte. And those are translated to roughly mean doing the best with what you have and persevering no matter what happens. And that is what they constantly reminded themselves of, which is also kind of why the Japanese-American incarceration story isn't known. It's because they felt like this was their duty to serve their country. The best thing they could do was to go peacefully into the camps and to make them as successful as possible, which is really remarkable when you think about that. And so what first happened was they had to sell all of their belongings. My grandfather's family lost their farm. And if you think about the value of how this landscape has really materialized Japanese Americans lost a significant amount of wealth because everything they had was taken away. Even my grandmother put her belongings, her family's belongings in their church. And by the time they left camp, it was all gone. So they really lost everything. You don't have a lot of time to sell. And a lot of the families next door to um, the incarceries actually took their belongings. So it was a time where Japanese Americans were at first really successful when they first entered America, and then they lost everything. And they were moved to different locations. My grandmother was moved with her family into a horse stall. They had um, one or two horse stalls for the entire family. And my grandmother's family was quite large, to be honest. And they they were moved to Tanforan Racetrack. And that, to me, just putting Americans in horse stalls before they were moved to their permanent internment camps was shocking to me because the government was so decisive about making this decision without having any of the infrastructure. It was then the Japanese Americans who actually really built the internment camps. So when they were then moved, my grandmother's family to Topaz in Utah, my grandfather's family to Tule Lake in California, their their first kind of couple months in camps was really building the camp. The only thing that was really set up, I believe, is they had the barbed wire fences and then they had guard towers. One thing my grandmother always says is if the internment camps were really to protect us, because that was one of the dialogues I was being tossed around by the government, is that we're going to put the Japanese Americans in concentration camps to protect them. But the guns were facing inwards, not outwards. And that was really the difference. I mean, people don't really talk about Um, the deaths in camp, but there was a death of an old man who went up too close to the barbed wire fence and the guard shot him. So it it really was prison. And the worst kind of it, because they made these shacks and they had bathrooms, but the bathrooms were just toilets in an open area and they all faced each other. And That is so degrading, but also in the Asian American culture and our ideas of cleanliness and respectability, it was so degrading just as a human to first be put in a horse stall and then to be put into these conditions. And so my grandmother would say they go to the last stall that actually faced the wall. And that was where most people would go. 
There was also water to degree, but one of the most horrifying parts about the camps is that there was one that was actually made because there used to be Native Americans on the land. It was Native American land. And the government said, we'll give you running water if you housed Japanese Americans. So it's a whole other story of really taking advantage of minorities to create a working camp. The the conditions, I mean, it, I just, as I'm listening, you know, I'm kind of trying to picture what life is like, you know, and it just doesn't, in a way, it doesn't seem that long ago. I mean, this was the 1940s. Here we are in the 2020s. It was less than 100 years ago. Um, it's just unimaginable. Uh, and I think the point is that there's just been, even though it, it feels like such a long time ago, it's really shocking that it happened less than 100 years ago. And you mentioned concentration camps. I thought it was so interesting because we often throw around the term internment camps a lot. Uh, but it just doesn't, at least to me, it doesn't seem like it really adds up to just how horrible the conditions were. I mean, it just, I mean, think I'm thinking about the concentration camps. There's all, I mean, there's, there's varying kinds. When we hear concentration camps, we think about the Nazi Germany, obviously, with, with what they did to the Jews or in the Holocaust. Uh, but do you think that internment camps is a sufficient enough word to describe how hard those conditions were for Japanese Americans? I don't. I think we always describe history of one step back of what it really was to kind of make it more tangible to understand. But really, this has been a huge conversation in the community of how to properly describe these camps. And one point that was made was that Nazi Germany, those were death camps. And in the United States, it was concentration camps. And that is actually how they were described when they were first created. So really concentration camp is the correct word to use to describe um, what we had and still honestly what we have in America today with immigrant facilities. And going back to your grandparents' experience there of you know, living in some of the worst conditions that any person can imagine, especially here in the United States of America, um, in a remote part of the country um, with, as you were, you were describing, guns pointing at them. Were there any thoughts that were going through your grandparents' minds about you know, what the future of the, the nation would be like had this been become a norm? I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, um, Asian American discrimination against Asian Americans wasn't just against Japanese Americans. There were other other people of different ethnicities um, who, in various different degrees, have been targeted. I mean, personally, you know, I'm of part uh, part Taiwanese or uh, Han Chinese ancestry, and so you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act I think was one of the great injustices um, towards the United States. So, do you think that they ever thought in their minds if a country can keeps doing something like this to one group, then this be, this would become the end of what the United States would represent forever. That's really the most remarkable part of my grandparents. And I think the entire Japanese American experience was that my grandparents always believed that the future would be so much better. And a point they always make is that they endeared what they went through with the tenacity and spirit. And I mean, my grandfather even went to serve um, for the U.S. government in Japan to be a translator to help the United States. And their entire 
belief was that they are American and that they believed in their country and that what they were going through was going to build a better future for their children and their children's children. And to be honest, I feel a huge amount of responsibility now bearing the benefits of that experience to really make them proud. And I would say growing up after I learned about their experience, that was really my inspiration in life to pursue building a better America. So the remarkable part is I don't think they ever thought that it would continue like this. I thought I think they were very realistic in that our country makes mistakes, but really knowing the mistakes is the most important part of fixing them. And I think it was that belief that I was going to get better that got them through the three to four years that they were there. That's such a powerful message because even in those difficult times, you know, your grandparents still had this this idea of faith. I mean, faith obviously being one of the pillars of of Washington's uh, farewell address, you know, being able to have some kind of uh, faith and some kind of – now, it's more of a religious aspect, but I'm saying that, you know, having faith in a nation um, is seems so critical, especially when it comes to advancement of the country as a whole. And, you know, you brought up a little bit about kind of how it affects, you know, what you're, you're doing uh, now and what you've done um, in your career. I mean, just reading through the bio, I'm just so fascinated by all the things that you've been able to do. Um, I don't know how many hours in a day you have. I have 24. Um, <laughs> but uh, I I am just so fascinated by, by some of the things you've done. Talk a bit about uh, the, your work with the uh, the National Japanese American Memorial. Um, I recall that there is a memorial not too far from the National Mall that recognizes uh, the the ultimate sacrifices that the Japanese American community has made, especially in World War II. Uh, it was really really powerful words there. Uh, so, could you share a bit about what you um, more about what you did and maybe what the memorial represents to you? The National Japanese American Memorial to Patriotism in Washington, D.C. is one of the most important places in the world to me. And what's really special is that my grandparents are actually very instrumental in, instrumental in helping to get it built. And it's the only memorial in the United States that recognizes a wrong that our country has done and serves as an apology. And it used, it was supposed to, there's a lot of debate over which land would be used, but it ended up um, being placed next to Union Square or Union Station. But at the beginning, they wanted to place it across from the Supreme Court, which would really symbolize <laughs> a justice and inequality situation in our country. But they ended up choosing this land that's really a triangle. And what's really special is that when you start walking into the memorial, it feels confined and you keep walking and then there is more of like a Zen um, bell and water element, which is supposed to symbolize freedom. And overarching, coming out of the walls, is a crane that represents freedom bursting out of barbed wire. And crane has a lot of symbolism in the Japanese American Japan because it represents like a strong bird um, who is always taking off. And underneath the memorial actually has a handful of dirt from all of the um, internment camps. So the entire symbolism there is really important. And it was first built, I think they finished in 2010. So I used to go there as a kid and just looking up at the names on the wall of the camps and seeing how many people were there. It's just a very powerful place. 
And one of the things that I think is also remarkable about Japanese Americans in internment camps was the fact that every single day in camp, they pledged allegiance to a flag, to the flag of the United States of America. And they always still believed in America. And even more than that, what my grandmother always reminds me is that we pledge allegiance to a flag and not a person. And if you believe in your country, then you can be that change. Because truthfully, when I first found out (laughs) about my family story, I wanted to be really mad. And I didn't understand it, especially being um, an Asian American, a predominantly white school. It just, it just didn't make any sense to me why this would happen and how this could even be allowed. Because even as a kid, you know that's inhumane and wrong. And what they taught me was that if you feel this way, then you have the power to change it. So that's why I really invested my time into the memorial, not only because of my family's story, but also because of what it represents about our country's ability to apologize and make amends, which is really important. But even more than that, the fact that in order to know our country's history, I think there's always an idea of the past and the present, I mean, the past and the future. But in order to really make a country that we love and appreciate and believe in and are proud to be a part of, it really matters about the now and being in places where you can understand making a difference in the now. Because if we keep pushing changes off to the future, then what our kids experience are going to be the same stories that we've heard about, just with different ethnicities as the author. Wow, so well said. Uh, I've been to that memorial. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the National Mall. It's so fitting as well, you know, being fitting so and right in the heart of Washington, D.C., and um, it's it's a wonderful sight. So as you were describing that, I'm just kind of th- thinking about that. I was I was there back in uh, summer 2019 when I was when I did a stint on the hill and uh, uh, just walking around and seeing something that I honestly didn't um, didn't know was near the National Mall. I actually discovered it, which was kind of even I guess even more powerful moment <laughs> as well to reflect on that time. Right. You know, you've obviously discussed so much about you know your 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 grandparents and the extraordinary experience that they've they've went through and being able to share it with you I think it must be such a blessing. Um how did you you know eventually decide to make this part of your platform and uh, something that you truly believe in your heart that was important for um not just maybe not just generations now but for generations in the future. Well, for me, my grandparents' story is my story. And if I don't tell it, then no one else will. And one of the reasons why Japanese American incarceration isn't as well known is because it was seemed as almost shameful from our perspective, from our culture, because we had to prove that we were American. And a lot of the people who went through that experience didn't want that experience to define their life. And so they left it behind, didn't talk about it. And actually, a lot of people in my parents' generation didn't even know that their parents were incarcerated until their funerals when their friends would say, oh, did you know this? And it was shocking. And so for me, being the descendant of my grandparents and having that the benefits of their struggle, it's so important for me to be able to really put into action 
all of the sacrifices that they've made and to make something better from it. And so it really started from hearing their story and doing work with the memorial, but it expanded because really being Japanese American and being Japanese aren't the same things as people like to conflate them as because the Japanese American story really has a lot of generational trauma in it just from this one experience and then built upon by being Asian American in the United States. And so really for me, in order to prevent this from ever happening again in the future, it comes down to building a strong relationship between my two countries now. And a beautiful part of that was seen recently with the cherry blossoms in DC. That's a friendship gift from Japan to the United States. And being mixed race and being part of those two countries, it's so special for me to be able to be that in-person bridge. And now the United States and Japan have one of the best relationships. And there's obviously still a lot to be said there in that relationship because the United States played such a huge role in reforming the constitution of Japan and with current military bases there. But as far as I'm concerned, I think our generation now has this really special chance to really perpetuate a good relationship between the two countries. That's so wonderful to hear, especially when you mentioned about the importance of your background and how it reflects your determination to improve relations between the two nations. Your point about the importance of the U.S.-Japan relations is so spot on. I mean, I'm not just saying that as someone who did international relations or media politics. I I say this because there there is a lot of, of history between these two nations. And no doubt that to quickly revert to my political side of things, uh, in, especially in this day and age, when we're seeing the challenges, the, both the, geopol- the geopolitical, the economic challenges coming from China, um, there's cer- it's certainly no secret that China and Japan have quite a bit of, of uh, heat in between the, the two. Uh, but in part, it's because I believe that our relationship with Japan is so strong. Uh, we have done a lot of work over the last few decades, uh, really going from, you know, Japan going from a, an Axis power um, enemy to what is now, it's a remarkable transformation. Um, and I don't think there's any, really any country like that, uh, at least at least in the, the Asian continent, for sure. Uh, so I just, I just want to remark on about that. And um, I want to kind of broaden this a little bit to Kind of in general, how the United States should be reflecting on these terrible episodes uh, in American history. In a way, it's part of the common fabric of the nation in, to some degree, where um, we we don't have the exact same experiences, uh, but we we feel for one another. We recognize that throughout the history, throughout the journey of the United States, different groups have been treated very differently, and oftentimes in very very bad ways, but. We, we try to build on them. We try to improve them. So bring this topic into kind of the, the narrative nowadays. Um, what do you think are some of the th- big lessons that people generally should learn and how that can apply to just the purpose of learning history and the purpose of learning it and learning from the lessons of it so we don't make those same mistakes again? There's a saying that's been going around, given the current landscape, that is, what you're seeing isn't American. And 
it is. It really, it is American. Our country, our existence is built off of experiences, some good and some bad. And that is, as you were saying, the fabric of our country. And really, you can't debate that events of our country in the past are wrong. Slavery, Native Americans, Japanese American in concentration camps. You can't debate those topics. They were wrong. But we also can't go back and change them. And the only way to properly address them now is to know that they happened, to know the exact details of how they happened, and to know how they came to be. And I think where we're lacking in American history, especially I went through the public school system in high school, so I've experienced this firsthand, is that you memorize dates. You memorize events that happen, you memorize the big events, and you're just kind of tested on them. There's no personal stories. You don't feel any connection. You just know that they kind of happened. But what's really important to know is the transition of how that came to be. Why is the hate crimes that Ameri Asian Americans are experiencing now, why is that not new? What have we already seen before? And there are so many clues in our past that we should be able to better handle things in the current day. And really a remarkable thing and really sad is that we learn one kind of history. We learn the winner's history. And in order to actually understand why our country is the way it is, we need to understand all the other people who are also in our country and those important stories and to be able to connect with those important stories. So Illinois just became the first state to require Asian American history in schools. But <laughs> it's funny to me because it's not Asian American history, it's American history. And that is who we are. I, I know we love to classify things as putting a, a word, a hyphenated word in front of who we are, but we are all American. We all have this same history and it's a disservice to every single American not to know who we are, how we came to be, and how we can move forward as a better and stronger country. Amen. I, I, I've been such a strong advocate for getting people engaged in history. It's a bit like how I speak about civics too. One example that I particularly enjoy myself reading about uh, was about the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, obviously very relevant to, directly relevant to um, what you've been saying about the ability for the United States to issue an in a direct apology. And this is uh, a bill that I think is really a remarkable story. You've probably heard Norman Mineta, the congressman from California, yes. and mm -hmm. and uh, the re Republican senator from Wyoming, Alan Simpson, who uh, uh, Simpson actually met uh, Mineta uh, oh, way back, a long time ago. They became friends. They served in Congress together in different chambers, but still were close friends. And they, I think it was because of their efforts that they were able to get the Reagan administration and to get Congress on board uh, to vote for it, to pass in both uh, the House and the Senate, and for the president to sign in 1988. Um, it's just a remarkable, remarkable story. And I think it's a great example of people coming together, uh, but uh, coming together uh, because of these common bonds, you know, the, and the common bonds of recognizing you know, uh, recognizing what went wrong, America could recognize that it, that it made a, a number of big mistakes and it was able to progress forward. I, I just, I love that, that little story there. Um, they actually met in internment camps um, when the senator's Boy Scout troop 
decided that they wanted to do something to meet the other boys in the internment camps. That's how they met the first time. And that friendship, he kept going back. And that friendship was how you have this story today. So it's really right. cool. The, uh, someone else I also admire uh, very much. Uh, I know it's another member of Congress. So I'm just I'm very Congress biased myself. <laughs> so, but it's a uh, uh, U.S. Senator Daniel Inouye, uh, who mm-hmm. was uh, a, a long-serving senator and definitely one who, who voted uh, not just voted with for this bill, but also did a lot of things for his state. You know, setting one of uh, being one of the first members of Congress from the new state of Hawaii. Um, is there anyone? else uh, that you admire from the Japanese American community that you believe hopefully could be um, it could be highlighted a bit more in uh, in American history textbooks there's so many people we can choose from but I want to give you an opportunity to uh, tell us a bit about uh, someone you admire um, that, who reflects uh, some of the things that we have talked about today well what's remarkable about the first two that you mentioned is that they're actually close family friends and um, I spoke at Senator Inouye's um, Memorialized Day of Remembrance at the Smithsonian about what the future of Japanese Americans was in our country. So to know both of them is really something inspirational. And it's also emblematic of the fact that Japanese Americans are really <laughs> close knit and we know each other, especially our congressmen who have worked so hard to reach a point to make sure that their experiences are known and to make sure that what they've been through won't happen again. Um, and another one I would say would be Congressman Honda, who I worked for. He was very young when he was incarcerated, but being able to work for him as a congressional intern and to really learn about how he wants <laughs> to really pave a way for a better future for his grandchildren was a really special experience. And then my grandparents are the most remarkable people to me. My grandfather, he was a dentist in D.C., and he received the word of the rising sun from the Japanese emperor, which is the highest word you can receive as a non-Japanese citizen for his service in building a better relationship between our two countries. So I, I know that I would not be the person without them. I spend every day after high school with them, and they really have inspired me to be the person that I am today. So I'm very thankful. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful, touching reflection of of your grandparents. And clearly, you know, from my perspective, I'm sure the friends and fellow citizens community and many others across uh, will also join you in um, in paying in paying tribute to to the numerous people I, we mentioned earlier about uh, Japanese Americans serving in the military. Um, and and I believe they were uh, there were some really really decorated ones, very very talented ones who who served in our military. Uh, there's just so many different avenues that you could take and uh, and bring to bring together Japanese Americans as part of the, the American experiment. And you know, overall, I mean, we've we've touched a lot you know over the course of the last half hour or so. And and uh, Carolyn, you've been so amazing with regards to your insights your reflections you made so many so many incredible points um it's really uh, it's really remarkable um as you know with friends of fellow citizens we have six pillars six values that uh, i've pulled out from washington's farewell address now could you pick two or three of these values and uh, how you think they would apply to what we've discussed today in our episode 
I would like to focus on patriotism because I think in our history, sometimes we call patriotism and give it to only representing a white male. And really for me, our story is about reclaiming patriotism as our own. And patriotism really to me is a love for your country and belief that it can get better and belief in everything that it represents. So really the key takeaway for me always when learning about not only the Asian American story, but all stories in America is the fact that that's what makes America special. America is the dream of the world. And if we can believe in that, then we can make America everything that we want it to be. And it's really, it's special that we're all here and all of our stories mean something. They contribute to our country. And so it's really reclaiming patriotism as your own and reclaiming America as your own and recognizing your power to shape it to be anything that you want it to be. Wonderful. Wonderful. Perfect. Perfect. And to, um, to our conversation, I want to close with a quote that I found. Um, there is a very notable case and already one of the worst ones, but I think one, one of the ones that we, we can reflect on the most in the last 80 years or so, which is the infamous case of Korematsu v. United States. Fred Korematsu was a young uh, Japanese American who was also at the camps as well. Um, and he, and for so many years, fought for the rights of Japanese Americans and for them to be remembered. And in this, uh, the Supreme Court decided, unfortunately, six to three, voted six to three in favor of FDR and favor of the FDR administration of keeping those internment camps. And you, know, you mentioned about how in history we always remember the winning side, but if you go to the dissent here, which is really critical, there were. Three justices who voted uh, against Owen Roberts, Robert Jackson. The last one is Frank Murphy. Justice Murphy writes, and I have the quote here. He writes, quote, I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. Racial discrimination in, in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting but it is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. All residents of this nation are kin in some way by blood or culture to a foreign land, yet they are primarily and necessarily a part of the new and distinct civilization of the United States. They must, accordingly, be treated at all times as the heirs of the American experiment— and is entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution, unquote. I end with that quote because I think it sums up so much of the ideals and and the things that we have talked about today, um, about this, the heirs to the American experiment. That's really what hit me, but thank you so much. So how can people find out more about uh, your work and about uh, what what you uh, do and to keep up with uh, all the things that, all the many things that you're able to keep up with <laughs> every single day? Well, I would say the best place to find me is on Instagram at Carolyn R. Hoover. And then you can also head over to the National Japanese American Memorial Foundation website to see some materials that I've put together on our story. I thought this was a wonderful conversation, Carolyn. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, for sharing your amazing stories and 
no doubt, I'm sure your grandparents are so proud of you for doing what you have done to recognize their lineage and recognize their history because their history is important. Their history is part of our history. Um, and we, as, 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 as Americans, uh, need to cherish that as, and, be, and make it part of, of who we are, not to, shy, not to shy away from it. As difficult as the situation it was and difficult as it is to learn from it, uh, it's really a wonderful a time of reflection to be able to hear from people like your grandparents. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Caroline. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I appreciate you for always uplifting the voices of Americans. I really appreciate those kind words. And I'll make sure to link some links down in the show notes below so you can follow Carolyn and check out some of the other uh, resources that she just mentioned. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Carolyn really is an inspiration for me, and I learned so much from her. And I hope that her platform and the messages that she is bringing uh, to audiences around the country, around the world, continue to spread because what she says is, is truly, truly inspirational. It's been an honor to have her on Friends and Fellow Citizens. If you liked this episode and you enjoyed this show, make sure you subscribe to Friends and Fellow Citizens and share this episode with your friends and family. I really appreciate you supporting not just me, and the Friends of Fellow Citizens community, but also our wonderful guests who come on this show every two weeks. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. Until next time.